Amen. Thank you, Cindy. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Teaching through the book of Revelation this summer, and I think we approach the book sometime as something so mysterious that it's been concealed, and yet the word revelation means it's been revealed. And so the reason we're studying it, God just convicted me that if the Bible tells us, if you'll read this book, you'll be blessed. It says that in the first chapter. For those who read the book, those who hear the book, and those who heed the book, there's a blessing promised. So I want to encourage you as we walk through Revelation this summer, if you're not able to be here every week, you can listen to it uh, on iTunes or over the internet uh, through our website. Uh, This morning's message is entitled, The Promise of Jesus. What's the greatest prize that you've ever received? Maybe it was... At the end of a race, maybe it was the end of an athletic season, maybe it was last night, maybe you bought the $6 million Powerball ticket. Did y'all hear about that? Somebody in Florida, a single person bought a ticket sometime that last night the number was called nearly $600 million. Is that person here this morning? We need to pass the plates one more time. Probably not. I guess if it was bought in Florida, they're in Florida. But I think sometimes if all you think about heaven, and I want to be careful, if all you think about heaven is there's this prize at the end of the race, it's better than that. It's better than that. A man tells a story of opening his front door and finding a strange little dog standing there with his newspaper in his mouth. And he thought, this is great, special delivery. So he went and got the dog some treats and came back and handed the dog some dog's treats. The next morning he was horrified. To see the same dog there with eight newspapers. <laughs> Man spent the rest of the day going back to his neighbors apologizing. So if you're motivated only by the dog treat, then you may miss the real blessing of what heaven's going to be all about. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love his writing. Pay attention to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, We're afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, then we will no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart will want to. That's what the Bible says. The pure in heart shall see God. I think some of us are probably more thinking like the preacher did that died and went to heaven. And we got there, he saw a New York cab driver that had a higher place in heaven than he did. So he asked St. Peter, hey, what's up? And St. Peter said, listen, we're rewarding based on results. How did it go at your church when you preached? And the preacher had to acknowledge that sometimes people fell asleep. He said, well, this cab driver, when you rode in his cab, nobody fell asleep and most people prayed. (laughs) So we have this idea of these rewards, but the reward that you're going to hear about this morning is a crown. And it's more than just getting there best reward we're going to have is to see Jesus face to face, to know that we're going to spend eternity with God. That's enough. And yet you'll see this morning it's even even better than that. If you've got your Bibles open, we're looking at two churches. We're in the middle of this section of these letters to the seven churches. And last week we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. In fact, if you back up to chapter one, you see that John was given this instruction. John was told, write down everything you see. Can you imagine how hard that would be? 
I think all the other writers of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, I think wrote down what God told them to write down. It's one thing to write down what you hear. It's one thing to write down what somebody tells you to write down. But what John saw was remarkable. He saw things that were beyond description. And that's why so often he has to say, well, it was like this. And what he was to do was to take the book of Revelation and distribute it to these seven churches. And from there, it was going to be distributed to the rest of the world. That's how we got it. The church we looked at last week was the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus had problems. In fact, five of the seven churches had one thing in common. They had problems. The first one, the church at Ephesus, and the last one, the church at Laodicea, had serious problems. And so I've, I'm going to take those two separately. Last week we looked at Ephesus. But there's two churches that had something in common. There's really not a problem at the church. There was problem in the fact they were facing persecution, but there wasn't something that Jesus was condemning them for. So this morning, we're going to look at two churches. We're going to look at the second church, and we're also going to look at the sixth church. I'll try not to make this overly confusing. But I want to read the passage, in fact, the entire passage. Starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, and then we'll look at chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And then chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and, know, and bow down at your feet, and I will make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we get into the first point, just, there's some common themes between these two churches and there's a, a common address. And Jesus basically describes himself, first of all, he describes himself as the first and the last, in the first chapter we saw, he's the alpha, he's the omega. He's the beginning, he's the end. He's the first and the last. What's God saying by that? He's saying, I'm sovereign over history. I'm also sovereign over the future. I was dead. 
but I've come to life. One of the beautiful things about Revelation, we see Jesus in the Gospels as a suffering servant. What you're going to see in Revelation is Jesus as a conquering king. I was dead, but I've come back to life. I'm the holy and the true. I have the key of David, and I open and I shut. And what I open, nobody can shut. What I shut, nobody can open. What's he talking about when he says, I have the keys of David? Well, the Jewish people that he's addressing in both of these churches that are causing problems to the church thought they had the key of David. You can go back in the Old Testament. That description is used. They thought they had the authority. They thought they had the blessing of God. And John is not writing or Jesus is not speaking to all Jews in general. He's speaking to the ones that were causing trouble to the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia. They thought they had the keys. I, I just can picture when I'm going around. What did I do with my keys? I thought I had them. Do you got the keys? Who's keeping the keys? Jesus says, I've got the keys. It's a position of authority. I can unlock what I want to unlock, and I can lock what I want to lock. And see, the Jews thought they had that market cornered. They thought they could say to the church, you're not a real church, you're not a real follower of Jesus Christ, or you're not a real follower of God, because we've locked you out. In fact, one of the, one of the horrible things that this Jewish synagogue had done is that they had colluded with the Roman authorities to lock out the Christians. And that's why the Christians became persecuted. That's why they became impoverished. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But that gives you a sense of who Jesus is saying that he is. And in all these letters, he basically describes himself. And then he says, and I say this. And most of the churches, he says, here's what I know. Last week we saw that he said, I see your deeds. I see that you're working hard. And he said some great things. Only problem is the church in Ephesus had one thing against them that is they had left their first love they had abandoned jesus in the process and you ask the question is it possible to have church without jesus there yeah wait till we get to the seventh church where's jesus at the seventh church he's knocking on the door not even in there he wants to get in but here's the first thing he says i know your tribulation the word tribulation in scripture means pressure it means to crowd in it it means to compress what happens to the church in history when it faces persecution? You know what happens? The church flourishes. Do you know why? Because hypocrites don't hang around when the going gets tough. <laughs> hypocrites love being in church when everything's easy. And honestly, the church in America up until now has had it pretty easy. It's getting harder. It's getting harder. And a lot of churches that remain faithful toward the last days are going to see people leave the church. What did Jesus say about them? They went out from us. Why? Because they weren't of us. So he says, first of all, I see your tribulation. Do you ever, is there times that you experience this pressure of tribulation and think, nobody knows. You know the old song. Nobody knows the trouble I'm seeing. Well, if nobody knows it, there's one person that knows it, and that's Jesus. And what Jesus, one word of comfort that he's given to the church is, it has not escaped my notice that you're under intense pressure. I see your tribulation. I see what you're going through. It hasn't escaped my notice. Second thing he says is, I see your poverty. It's interesting in the Greek language. In fact, other parts of the Old Testament or New Testament, the word poverty sometimes simply means you don't have any extra. It's not what this word is. It's a different word. It means you don't have anything. Why didn't this church have anything? Well, the persecution, part of the persecution in the first century was that 
people were spread out. They, they had to leave home and family. A lot of them were cut off from their family. A lot of them family said, you become a follower of Jesus, you're out of here. They lost their source of income. They lost their source of support. And a lot of times they had to flee for their very lives. And so Jesus says, I see your poverty. And yet it's interesting. He says what? But you're really rich. What's he saying? They didn't have a lot of money in their pocket. But what they had was something money can't buy. Now, he's going to say to the church at Laodicea, the seventh church, you claim to be rich, but really you're poor. So is it possible to have mansions and bank accounts that are full and think you're rich in the things of this world and yet really be poor? Absolutely. Why? Because what's going to happen to this stuff? The Bible said it's going to melt with intense heat. You're leaving it all behind. And so what he says to this church is, look, you may not have a lot of the world's stuff now, but you're rich. And I want to say to you, church in America, we're rich both ways, really. But as times get tougher for believers, hang on to this promise. Even if your bank account's not full. Even if you see everybody you know that seems to be prospering and yet they're not living for God. And you think sometimes, should I become like them? The answer is no. They are poor. They better enjoy it while they can because they're not taking it with them. So he says, I see your poverty and yet really you're not impoverished, you're rich. I even know about the blasphemy. Evil things were said about this church at Smyrna. And some of the people that were saying it were religious people. The religious people were going to the Roman authorities and saying, listen, I know that you've kind of given us Jews some protection, but you don't need to give it to those Christians. They're following a false God. And one of the things Satan does to blaspheme God is to have people speak against God's people. See, Satan can't hurt God. So he tries to hurt God by hurting his children. And so Jesus says, I've seen that. I know that you're being vilified, you're being slandered by the very people who say that they're Jews. What are they saying? We're Jews by birthright. Well, they weren't even followers of God. They went to the synagogue. But listen to the way Paul put it in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Just make a note of this. Here's what Paul said about those kind of Jews. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So Jesus is saying, listen, you claim to be religious. You say you're Jews, but you're lying. Yeah, you go to the synagogue, but listen to how he describes the synagogue. Synagogue was a gathering place. Jews, even to this day, go to synagogue. But he says, your synagogue's not of God. You go to the synagogue of Satan. Remember what Jesus said over in John 10? He says, my sheep know my voice, but those who aren't my sheep, they speak the same language as their father, the devil. That's who they're of. When they speak, they're speaking their native tongue because it comes straight from him. So they're of the synagogue of Satan. Now, we're looking right now at what they're to do. In a few minutes, we're going to see what Jesus is going to do. And we'll pick back up on what he's going to do about the synagogue of Satan. But their plan, their meeting, one of the things they did in their synagogue was how can we get rid of these Christians? How can we make life so tough for them that they won't flourish? And yet, look through church history. When the church is persecuted is when the church flourishes.
And then he commends them for the fact you have kept my word. Listen, they were pressured to not keep his word. In fact, the pressure they're under, the word tribulation, that means pressure to feel just compressed. You know the way to let the relief valve happen? It's just become like the world. Don't keep the word. Just do what the world does. And they'll quit pressuring you. But Jesus says, no, you've persevered. You've kept my word. And I want you to really get the meaning of this because you're going to see it again in a minute that how Jesus described something. To keep the word means you kept your eye on it. You have guarded it. You've maintained the integrity of it. You kept an eye on it. You haven't let outsiders come in and dilute it and make it say something that it's not saying. You've allowed the word of God to speak for itself, the pure, unadulterated word of God. He says, you've kept my word. Even when it was hard to do so. In fact, he described them, you've had little power. It really means this, your, your church is small and it's not powerful in influence like it seems the Jews are in your city. But folks, it's more important to be faithful than it is to be powerful. And he was about to make them powerful. We'll see that in just a moment. And the last thing he says as far as what they were doing, he commended them for the fact that you had not denied my name. Again, if you just deny his name, people will leave you alone. But you haven't done that. In fact, you have confessed my name. You keep confessing my name. Why are you the way you are? It's because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say over in Matthew? Chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, he says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I'll confess him before the Father. But if anyone denies me before men, I'll deny him before the Father. So Jesus commended them on a number of things. The last one of that was they had not denied his name. They had not contradicted his name. They had not disavowed his name. They had confessed his name. That's what they've been doing. Let's see what Jesus says. Okay, now, here's what you are to do. And then lastly, we're going to see what Jesus says he's going to do. So good things that they're doing, here's what you are to do. First, do not fear. Do not fear. What were they afraid of? Well, apparently they weren't afraid, but they could have become afraid of the fact that everybody was against them. They're being pressed in from the Roman government. They're also being pressed in from religious people who claim to know God. And so he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything or anyone. Why? Because what's the worst thing that man can do to you? He might could take your life. He cannot take your salvation. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid about what you're to suffer. Now, that almost sounds like a little discouraging word. God, we don't want to talk about suffering. Don't be afraid because it's all going to be rosy. <laughs> There's some that almost preach that. Some of these TV preachers that kind of make you think that, you know, once you come to Christ, you never have any problems. Really? How long have you been with Christ? <laughs> In fact, there's a quote that a lot of people say. If you ever heard the quote, God won't put on you more than you can handle. Guess what? He does that regularly. Why? So that we turn to him. Now, in 1 Corinthians, it says he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape. But folks, listen, if you go through life thinking God will never put on me more than I can handle, guess what? When something comes on you more than you can handle, you're in trouble if you don't turn to Jesus. So he says you're going to suffer. In fact, the devil's going to cast you into prison. And you're going to suffer for 10 days. You'll have tribulation 
for 10 days. And scholars debate over what's the significance of 10 days. Does it just mean a fullness of time? Does it harken back to Daniel when Daniel talks about a trial of 10 days? I, I don't know, but I know this. What he's saying is the, the pressure, the tribulation, what you're about to suffer is going to be intense, but it's not going to last very long. And uh, the whole time, God's saying, I'm in control. I'm not going to let anything happen to you more than what I've allowed to come through my hand. So, yeah, you're going to be cast into prison. You'll be tested. You'll have tribulation. So don't be afraid. But rather, be faithful. Be faithful even in the midst of the pressure and the persecution and the being put in prison. Be faithful. Literally be trustworthy. And the third thing he says is hold fast. I love the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 when it says, Hold fast to the confession of your faith, knowing he who promised is faithful. So why can I hold fast? Because he's holding fast. He will never let go. Don't let the accuser fool you. Jot, jot a couple of verses down in your margin. John 10, 28 through 30. Because here's what the accuser wants to tell you. The accuser's wanting to tell you that you've lost it. That God's not really coming back. He's been gone too long. And when he said he's coming quickly, he really didn't mean that. What does the Bible say? He's not slow. But he's not willing that any should perish. So don't count his slowness as though he's gone to sleep or something. His timing is what? Perfect. So the accuser will come to you and say he's either not coming or you've messed up. God doesn't love you anymore. You've lost it. What does Jesus say in John 10? He says, verses 28 through 30, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Folks, when you're going through the pressure of persecution and you're having religious people lying to you, it's a comfort to know that Jesus says, hold fast. Because nothing can snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then Romans 8. I love Romans 8. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 38 and following. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, in case he's forgotten something, he adds this, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope that comforts you today, but I promise you, if you're going through trials, it's a comfort to know that God hadn't left you. He's not going to forsake you. And he's got his eye on you. He says, hold fast. And the last thing he says to do is hear what the Spirit says. He says that to all the churches. If you got an ear, hear. In the first chapter, he said, you're blessed if you'll hear. And it means more than just hearing. You remember, any of you had parents that said, you're not listening to me. And you're like, well, I hear you. But it's going in one ear and out the other. My mom used to say that to me. She apparently thought there wasn't anything to stop it in here. So when he says hear it, he doesn't just mean that you've heard a, a sound. It means that you've heeded it. <laughs> you've obeyed it. Anyone who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says, obey it. And here comes the good news. The last thing. Jesus talked about what they are doing and what they need to do. Here's, Jesus said, here's what I'm going to do. Listen, there's no promise of an easy life as a Christian. But there's a divine comfort and blessing in the midst 
of whatever you're going through, knowing that God is able. First thing he says he's going to do is take care of the liars. He, he called in both passages, he called these Jews, they were part of the synagogue of Satan. So what does he say he's going to do to them? They say they're Jews, but they lie. I will make them bow down at your feet. Now, not to worship them, but these people have lorded it over the Christians their entire life. They've always had the upper hand. And one day Jesus says, I will subdue them. They'll be under your feet and I will make them know that I love you. Because what did these religious people say? God loves us. We're his chosen people. And yet everything they did said they didn't know God. And so if you're one of these Christians that your entire life had been lived being mistreated by the religious people of the world and kind of feeling like a second-class citizen, Jesus says there's coming a day when they're going to have to bow and I'm going to make them know that I love you. Don't buy the lie now. You just wait. The day's coming. In fact, he said, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Remember back when I said, remember about the eye? It says, you have kept my word. It means you've literally kept your eye on it. Same words used here. Jesus is saying, in the middle of your testing, I am keeping my eye on you. And I'm going to keep you from that hour of testing. And the last thing he does is he guarantees reward. And I love this one. In both times, in the first one, he says, I'm going to give you a crown of life. In the second passage that we've looked at, the church at Philadelphia said, listen, don't let anybody try to come and take your crown. What's the crown of life? The word, there's two words in Scripture for crown. In fact, one of them's used in a hymn. It's the word diadem. You ever heard that one, lift up your royal diadem? That was a sign of royalty. It's not the word he uses here. It's the word Stephanos. Anybody named Stephen? Do we have any Stephens in here? There's nobody here named Stephen. Oh, over there, Steve! Steve Farmer. Okay. Steve, do you know what the word Stephen stands for? Do you know what it means? Crown. Did you know that? It's what the word meant. If you ran in a race in the Olympic Games, and that was big back in these days, is the, is the sporting life, the games. The one who won, they, they weaved together this garland, this crown, and they placed it on your head. What was it a symbol of? You finished the race, and you won. Here's what Jesus is saying. Just like they award those to the winners of the race, there's one waiting for you at the end of your race. Run it to win. And at the end of the race, there's a crown of life that nobody can take away from you. The crown of life. What a great promise of blessing. And he says, to him who overcomes, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. What does that mean? Well, yeah, you, you may face death. Most of us will. Unless we're here when Jesus comes back, we're going to die. But we're not going to face the second death. What is that? Eternal separation from God. You're not going to be hurt by that. Why? Because you're one of His children. And it may not have been pleasant on earth. You may have experienced persecution. Listen, we're beginning to see that even in our country. Christians have become marginalized. We, we're made fun of. People don't understand us, and it seems like it's happening quickly. Folks, we still haven't experienced what other people in the rest of the world experience. To lose your life for the cause of Christ. That day may come. But here's what Jesus is saying. 
You stay faithful in the race. And there's a crown of life that's waiting for you. And nobody can take that away from you. You're not going to be hurt by the second death. I'm going to make him a pillar in the place of God. Literally, this sign of support or a post or stability, permanence, immovability. You're there. He says, I'm going to write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name. All of those are indication of you belong there. I think somebody said membership. You belong there. It, in, it in, indicates citizenship. He'll even write his new name on us. You know, there's coming a day when just at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Even the people that today take that name in profanity. Even the people today who take that name as a joke. It amazes me how people who don't believe in Jesus will still use his name. I don't know if you're brave enough to do this, but next time somebody says that, just say, hey, why don't you talk to somebody you know? Because if you really knew Jesus, you wouldn't use his name like that. But there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That was a comfort to these two churches. And they, these two churches stood alone among the seven because there wasn't a condemnation. It was just a commendation. And Jesus says, here's what you're to do. But in the midst of all that, here's what I'm going to do. Now, how do we apply that 21st century? Folks, there's some parallels. I've already mentioned it throughout the message. But as you wrap your brain around what these folks went through, understand something. The same God says to you, hold fast. Keep the faith. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand. If you're a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're secure. If you're here and you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, today's the day of your salvation. I encourage you, to, before you leave this place, to talk to me at the back or talk to one of the leaders if you're here with the group. But for those of you that have trusted Christ, be comforted in the fact he's got his eye on you. There's nothing that's going to happen to you next week that escaped his notice. God never says, oops. He knows what's going to happen. He allowed it to happen. He's sovereign. And he's got his eye on you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for that assurance because, God, we are so clueless about what's going to happen at lunch today, much less next week or next year. And yet you're Lord of all of it. So, God, we trust you. We, we, we place our lives into your hands. Thank you for the promise of the crown of life. Thank you for the promise that you're guarding us and that you have a blessing in store that John even had a hard time describing. Thank you for all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.